Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. Welcome to Faith. Hey, great to see everybody here today. Thank you so much for coming. If you're a guest, you're very special to us. Take your Bibles out, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, I'm excited about the word that I believe God's given me for this service today. We are in a series, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Those words were framed in the Declaration of Independence. And it goes on to say that, that, that these three things were given to us endowed to us by our creator how many know that that those are things that god wants us to have life liberty and pursuit of happiness he's given it to every single person that's what his hope is for everybody we we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights life liberty pursuit of happiness. the trouble is we've tried to kick god out of america We've tried to remove him from America today, and and the more we do that, we are now reaping a moral chaos, violence in our land like never before, all because we've tried to remove the existence of our creator from our minds and from our hearts. God has promises for us. And no matter how dark the world may get, he is the light that always shines brightest against the backdrop of the darkness today. So I want us to stand together, we're going to look at God's word, and we'll look at this, how this light can shine in the darkness all around us. Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 14, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun, the land of Natali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Father, we thankful, Lord, today, so thankful, God, that no matter how dark it may seem in our land and the nation around us, there is a light that will shine even greater, that will serve as a beacon of hope. Lord, we need that light to shine brightly in our land today, and it's going to happen through each and every single one of us in this house this morning. And so I pray, God, that your light would shine through us, that we would begin to make a difference to those all around us who are lost, who are broken, who are hurting, who are messed up. But God, I'm thankful there's hope in you. So anoint me today as I preach your word. Open up our hearts to receive it, and we'll give you praise and glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Turn to someone and tell them they are a great light, and then you may be seated. You know, it's it's difficult to go into a war, into a, a contest, into an athletic event, into anything with the idea that we're gonna lose. That there's no hope. There, there's, there's no way around it, and so it's hard to go out and fight with the idea that somehow we have no chance of winning this battle. And yet here's the dilemma. God calls us to rise up like a mighty army. We sang that song, Break Every Chain. There's an army that God is raising up in these last days to break the chains of darkness, to break the bondage, but if, if we don't believe there's any hope, 
we just continue to remain hidden and keep a very low profile, and we tend to give up. And the first thought that comes to our mind is, is there really any hope for America? Is what I'm doing any good at all? Discouragement sets in. I remember I was a freshman in college. It was 1973, and the decision of Roe versus Wade was handed down. Since then, 58-plus million babies have been slaughtered and, and aborted and killed before they even had a chance to take their first breath in this land. And I remember how disheartened we were, and I remember how the churches began to rally together, and we prayed, and we sought God, and we believed, and we hung on, and we said, Lord, we just need to come against this atrocity. We need to pray for America, pray for our land, pray for ladies that God will move on their heart, that they won't want to have an abortion, and, and we cried out, and we prayed. We were hoping for the laws would be overturned and every time there was a new Supreme Court justice we maybe had a little ray of hope that somehow these evil demonic law would get struck down and then we it seemed like we take a step forward and then we go two steps back and now we've been in this fight what 40 40 something years now and it seemed like it just, it just seems to get worse. And even in the last year, the one real conservative Supreme Court justice we had, one of the few on the Supreme Court bench, died. And so now I'm thinking the balance of power has shifted. I want to tell you, this is why the election coming up is so critically important, because the next president will probably appoint at least two Supreme Court justices over the next four years. And we pray about it and we intercede and we say, is, is there anything I can do? Is there any good we can do? Is there anything going to come out of this? And more and more babies are being slaughtered every single day. And, and we look around in our land, we look at America, and, and, and things seem to be spiraling out of control with terrorism all around us. And we heard more violence this last week and every week it seems to be a repeated theme. The bomb's blowing up somewhere, a bus blowing up in a crowd, somebody running through a crowded area and running people over. And immorality is all around in our land. And it just seems so dark and it seems so bleak in America. And we have fought this battle and we have hung on and it, 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 at times it seems insurmountable. But let me tell you something. I believe in America. Now listen to me. It may get worse before it gets better. Because when it gets so low and so bad, the only hope for people to, to somehow solve this dilemma in their heart and their spirit is to begin to cry out for God. And we may get a little worse before it even gets better in this land in which we live. In order to fight off discouragement and keep standing strong in the face of opposition, we need to understand a couple things from the Word of God about the situation we're in today and how we got there and how we're going to get out of it. The first thing we've got to understand is God is a holy and just God who will judge this land, who will judge this world. Now, I want to tell you, when I talk about judgment, immediately there's a, our defense mechanisms goes up, and we say, I don't want to hear that. Let's talk about the loving God. Let's talk about the merciful God and, and, and peace and joy and all the wonderful things. And yes, he is all those things. He is a God of mercy and grace and love, but he is also a holy God. And Somehow we've forgotten that. We don't think about that anymore. We want to put that out. Few things infuriate modern pseudo-intellectuals and secular humanists 
like talk of a God of judgment. We just don't want to mention it or talk about it at all. And, and the logic comes back is, how could a loving God be cruel? How could he ever judge anybody? If he really is a God of love, how can he also be a God of judgment? Opponents of righteousness often believe in a form of religion, and they will talk about faith, and they'll talk about love, and they'll talk about those things that we call a politically correct religion. We say the right things because we don't want to offend anybody. We want to be very seeker-sensitive, and we, we want to be seeker-friendly. We want every unchurched, unsaved person to come into this house, but, but we can't do that at the expense of compromise. We can't compromise the truth of God's word, that God is a holy God. We can't back down into the guise of political correctness. They say praying in faith is okay as long as God doesn't hold us accountable to a moral standard. But when you talk about morality and you talk about a standard or raising up a standard as we have done in these last couple of weeks, all of a sudden we begin to shut down. I don't want to hear that. Or he'll talk like this. All, all religious beliefs are okay and you can believe in God just so you don't say God is the only way. Just don't be closed and narrow. Let's say there's a lot of different ways to God. And so when we begin to say God is the only way, we, we further shut down. Listen to me. This, the greatest sin of today is not murder and it's not rape and it's not robbery it's considered, they're all considered victims of society. Those who perpetrate those crimes are just victims of their environment. The greatest sin in the age in which we live is intolerance. And if you ever say your way is the right way, thereby declaring other ways by default are the wrong ways, you are guilty of intolerance or putting someone else down. You can believe in Jesus Christ, just don't say he is the only way. You can believe in a God, but not a holy and righteous God. It's this judgment thing that upsets people. It's this judgment thing that drives them crazy. People hate God's standard of righteousness, and so they attempt to pull it down and make God like themselves. So we recreate God, instead of man being made in the image of God, we make God in our image and in our likeness to meet our standard of morality. But the standard of morality is absolute and just and right, and we cannot lower the standards at any time of the word of God for our own convenience sake or for our own lack of morality. God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace, and today if you'll cry out to him, he'll forgive you, he'll cleanse you, he'll just make you a brand new person, but never lose sight of the fact that God is a holy God, and when they're gathered around the throne, what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, they cried out. He's a righteous God, and he will sooner or later judge us all. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I just want to focus on three verses. This whole chapter is kind of a 
I think even a picture of where America's gone, it's really a picture of the Roman Empire and how they turned away from God and exchanged the truth of God for a lie and weren't thankful anymore and, and what God began to do to the Roman Empire. But if you'll look at verse number 18, the wrath of God, everybody say wrath of God, is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what they may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Now listen to me. When we violate God's moral laws, something happens to everybody, their conscience bothers them. Now your conscience can be seared with a hot iron, your heart can be made hard, it talks about the hardening of the heart, your conscience can change and vary, but something happens innately, we know that there are certain things that are wrong innately, why? Because man was made in the image of God. So we bear his image. So everybody has a conscience that warns them. It's that like that red light. It's like that thing that goes on in our head that says, what I am doing is not right. But if you are a child of God, you also have the Holy Spirit living inside of you who amplifies your conscience and further speaks to you and further directs you. You become very, very sensitive to wanting to please God because now the Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells and lives inside of you. Now what we try to do is we play mental games to try to get around this conviction of sin. It's called justification. And so we get in the habit of justifying what I am doing or how I am acting. For example, someone may be taking drugs. And here's what they say, well, I don't deal drugs, I don't give it to little kids, and I don't really take anything that will really mess up my mind permanently, I just want a little drugs. Or how about this logic, I will only sleep with someone I really, really love. No, I'm not married, but we really, really love each other. And so we get in this justification, this this explanation of our sin, but these are weak attempts to replace God's laws with our own. The only way as a believer to deal with sin is to repent. Repent. When something is sin, it's in the word of God, it's wrong, the Holy Spirit convicts us, what do I do? I repent. I say, God, I've blown it. Forgive me. Cleanse me and help me not to do it again. Repentance, a change of heart, a change of way, a change of direction. Sin is addicting and we can become so attached to our sin, it becomes our very best friend. We hang on to it, hold on to it. Non-Christians will deal with conviction this way. When when their conscience speaks to them because their spirit man is dead in trespasses and sin, but when their conscience deals with them, they say, well, there is no God, therefore because there is no God, there can be no guilt or judgment. These are just false signals I'm getting. These guilty feelings are false because they're based on an outdated moral society, and I am enlightened. 
so I can do whatever I want to. Now let me go back into Romans chapter one. <coughs> Excuse me, it says, God gave evil men over to the lust of their passions and, and their degrading, the lust of their hearts and their degrading passions. You read that further down in Romans chapter one. In other words, he gave them over. He gave them over. For God to judge America, for God to judge man, he doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to send lightning bolts. He don't have to uh, rain down sulfur from heaven. He doesn't have to do anything. All he has to do is remove his hand. And that's what's happening. He's pulled his hand off of America. So his pervenient grace that surrounds all of us, he says, okay, have it your way, and we become judged by our own iniquity and our own sins. It leads to the moral chaos and violence we have right now in our land. He just simply pulls back. It says three times in Romans chapter one, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. He says, basically, have it your way. The worst judgment we can experience is have the absence of God's presence. Consequently, they have degenerated into deeper levels of sexual perversion and immorality. And he describes that happening in Romans chapter 1. God gave them over to a deprived man. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. And he uses that terminology. God's judgment was the removing of his grace that permitted them from going further into their sin. In other words, God gave them over by removing his restraining hand. Not only were they given over to their own lust, but the Bible says he gave them over to a depraved mind, Romans chapter 1. Now, what, does it, what is a depraved mind? A depraved mind is when you call that which is wrong right, and you call that which is right wrong. You ever heard the language today? Like kid, young people say, oh, that's really sick. Well, I, I don't know if you know that or not, but that, that was a good thing. I, that, that sick is like it's really good. I didn't know that. Uh, I'm learning that, uh, you know, uh, learning the lingo. That's, that's just sick. That, that means it's really cool, I guess, or really good. I, but, but, but when you get to the real, the way the mind is, when you swap right for wrong and you switch those things around, it is moral insanity. Calling that which is evil good and that which is good evil, that's the definition of a depraved mind. That's why the standards of morality in our society are so bizarre. That's why it doesn't make sense. You, you can't kill a puppy dog. You can't touch a, 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 any kind of animal. If you do that, you'll be locked up for years, but you can kill babies all day long. That's, that's, that's what's sick. When you reject God's laws, you are on your way to ethical and moral insanity. That's what I read about in Psalm 2 last week when I preached from that. In verse 3, it says, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away the cords from us. In other words, man was saying, let us throw off every single restraint that is out there. Of course, we got to verse 4, and it says, God sits in heaven and laughs and laughs. And we talked about how this gospel will be unstoppable. They say, man says, in effect, we will not be restrained by God's laws. We will decide our own version of right and wrong. And so God basically just says, have it your way. Have it your way. And he gives them over to the perversions of their depraved mind. You know the story of the prodigal son? Uh, 
He goes into dad, says, dad, I, I need the inheritance now. I, I want to have it now. I, I want to do it now. I don't want to wait. I want instant gratification. I don't want future reward. And so he says, give me all the inheritance. And the Bible says he goes away into a far country, a place of sin, a place of iniquity, far from father's house, far from daddy's house. And, and the Bible says he just was away from the father. What does he do? The Bible says he spends all his money, all his stuff in riotous living. And the implication is he's, he's hooking up with prostitutes and he's going from one lady to another and he's spending all he's got on whatever's going to make him happy at that moment. And he does all that. In the end, though, he finds himself in a pig pen eating the pods that the pigs didn't even want anymore. And that's how he stayed alive. Now, how did he get in the pig pen? He got away from his father's grace. When we say, God, I don't want you anymore, God simply says, have it your own way. So that what we are reaping in iniquity, what we're reaping in America, is what we have been sowing to the flesh for generations. So God doesn't have to do anything. We're bringing judgment upon ourselves because we no longer have that protective cover of God over our lives. That's judgment. Now, here's the great news. God allows this to happen, so when we hit bottom, we will come to our senses and return to God. Listen to me. Even God's judgment is redemptive. He allows it to happen. He pulls back. We reap the chaos. We reap the whirlwind of destruction so that ultimately we hit bottom. And that's what happened to the prodigal son. When he's in the pig pen, when he's as low as low as you can get, the Bible says he came to himself. Another translation says he came to his senses. And he says, you know what, self? I had it better in daddy's house than I do out here. And that's why I think sometimes America goes lower, hits rock bottom, chaos strikes. What happened after 9-11? The churches were full. I've never seen so many people in church as I did the Sunday after 9-11. It topped Easter services. The church was packed, crying out for mercy. But two weeks later, they're gone. They're back on their boats, they're back golfing on Sunday morning, they're back partying on the weekends, and it was a momentary cry for God that quickly evaporated away because there wasn't genuine repentance. And sometimes I think God just pulls his hand back, allows the judgment to come, so we will come to our senses. Good news is, you know, and, and he, he gives the devil enough rope. But when the, when the Lord does that, and he, and he lets the, the devil take that longer leash, so to speak, he gives him just enough rope to hang himself. Because the devil tries to wreak havoc, but all the time he's shooting himself in the foot because it's going to drive us to our knees and drive us to cry out for revival in our land and in America. Dawn always follows the darkness. It may get pitch black at night, but lift up your eyes. The dawn is coming. 
the light is going to come. I believe a revival is going to come. As Satan pushes America deeper into legislative and cultural depravity, he will push so far that people will begin to say, my only hope is God. I can't depend on government. I can't depend on the school systems. I can't depend on my neighbors. I can't depend on my government, this, my workplace, or this or that. My only hope is in the Lord. What seems to be a vehicle out of control, skidding off a moral road into a ditch, uh, will be the, I want to tell you, don't panic. It's the very thing that men and women will begin to discover their need for God. I read to you from Matthew 4. Just look at it again real quick. Matthew 4. The context is this. Jesus has just heard that John the Baptist has been thrown in prison. Okay? And, and, and I think he ultimately knows what is going to happen to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. He's the forerunner of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were very, very close. And now John's in prison. After he hears the news, he leaves home. And the Bible says it was then he goes into the region of northern Galilee, the area known by the, ten tri- the 12 tribes. Two of the tribes were settled there, Zebulun and Naphtali. You don't hear much about those tribes all throughout the Old Testament. They're probably the most famous because that's where Jesus did the bulk of his ministry. So he goes up into Galilee. He goes up into the regions of the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulon. And, and he says this was done to fulfill the prophecy the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, on the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. He's defining very carefully where this area, the light would shine the brightest because that's where Jesus would spend most of his ministry. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. He says it may be dark in Judea. John may be in prison. It may be rough right now. The Romans may be in control. We may be under their cruel hand. There may be immorality, idolatry, and perversion, and wickedness all around us. But lift up your head. The light has shined in the darkness. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus Christ went into the darkness and he penetrated the darkness with his own light and I believe that's what God wants to do in America today. How will he do it? He won't come back in the flesh. He will one day to take us home uh, but you're that light. You're the light of Christ shining within you. You're the one that has been called by Christ to let your light so shine before men that they may see your heavenly father and glorify him. You're the light. God has brought you to this time in history, this moment in history. You're here right now in this time to be a light. A light has shined in the darkness. I like the way Dr. Mark Rutland put it when he writes this. Satan has never had any self-control and no ability to know when to stop. His tactics always become more and more brutal, more lethal, more horrible, and more upfront. He always goes too far. The result being whole nations desperately seeking to get back to God. And I believe that's exactly what's happening in our land today. In the Old Testament, in the nation of Israel, you have a king by the name of Ahaz. Ahaz reigned for 16 years. He is the last in a long line of kings in Israel that is leading that 
Israel, which was the northern kingdom, deeper and deeper into moral and spiritual depravity. He is leading them into idolatry, rampant idolatry, and Israel has pretty much forgotten Jehovah God for the most part. Wickedness. And each king in Israel, as you study their history, becomes more and more wicked than the last king. And so there's their daddy who was wicked, and then there's their son who's more wicked, and then there's their grandson who's more wicked. And it just gets worse and worse from generation to generation. The moral and spiritual life of Israel was absent and is about as low as it could get. Idol worship, pagan religions, they were involved in human sacrifices where they would take their children and throw them on the fire of Moloch and put it in the belly of Moloch, that idol they constructed outside the city of Jerusalem. They would, they would kill and destroy their children. All kinds of immorality, perversion permeated the society, temple prostitutes all around, both male and female. And, and it says, and you get the description of the land of Ahaz in Second Chronicles 28. They cast off all restraints. The national and spiritual climate was so polluted, there seemed to be no hope whatsoever. And then a new kid comes on the block. He is going to ascend to the throne. His name is Hezekiah. Hezekiah rises up. And even though uh, he, he had no moral fabric or background to draw from because his daddy, his grandfather, his great-grandfather were all completely wicked, I believe as he walked the hallways of his father's palace and he saw the perversion and he saw the harlotry and he saw the brutality and he saw the human sacrifices, something began to happen inside of him. And Hezekiah had a choice to make. He could have followed in his father's footsteps and taken the land deeper and deeper into a pit of depravity. Instead, he went the other way, and something inside of him rose up and said, I wasn't born for this. I am not going to accept this for Israel. And he rises up and becomes a godly, righteous king in the land, King Hezekiah. And for a time, Israel experiences revival. Listen, parents, you may have a kid at home who's driving you nuts. And they yell, and they fight, and they argue. They get that look on their face. They snarl at you. Rebellion is in their hearts. They tell you where to get off and take your God with you. But this same kid can one day stand up and see a society that is so evil and so black and say, Don't tell me how to live. I'm going to live for God. And some of those prodigals that are the furthest away from home, you've taught them right, you've shown them the way to go, and they may be out there in that far country, but God is going to bring them back, and they're going to stand up like Hezekiah, even though Ahaz was wicked, even though his grandfather was wicked, even though his great-great-grandfather was wicked, Ahab, Hezekiah says, I'm going to stand for God. I'm going to stand for God. For righteousness. This world tries to shape us into its own image. But it says in Romans 12, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've got to say as children of God, don't tell me how to think. Don't tell me how to dress. Don't tell me what my values are. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Hezekiah made that statement. He says, we are going to serve the Lord. 
He said the priests are dirty, the temple is dirty, the city and nation and our lives are dirty too. They could have killed him. But when Hezekiah rose up and says, we're going to serve the Lord, there were a whole lot of other closets, Jehovah God worshipers that began to come out of their foxholes. When he raised the standard up of righteousness very high, the nation of Israel began to follow. And you read about a national revival that takes place. <coughs> you realize that stars, right now, stars are always shining. They're stars. They're, they're on fire. They're always shining. But you can't see them in the daytime because it's not dark enough. So you don't see the stars. You see the, the sun, the one key star, but all those other stars you see at night when the sky lights up and you look up at the heavens and you see innumerable amount of stars. You can't see them in the daytime. It's too bright. The darker the darkness and the longer you have lived in it, the brighter the light appears to you. You ever, you ever seen those scenes of those guys being taken out of those, of those concentration camps and those pits where it's total darkness and they, they put the guy in the hole, they put him down there for 10 days or whatever or he's in solitary confinement and, and, the, and there's no light whatsoever coming through anyway. And if you just shine the, the slightest little light, what are they doing? Oh, man, that's so bright. Can't even look at it. Because they've become accustomed to the darkness. Because the darkness has been so black for so long, they have lived in that darkness. Jesus tells us, do not put your light underneath a bushel. And I will tell you, you begin to stand for righteousness and morality, and you talk about Jesus Christ, and you show the love of God, and you have the peace of Christ ruling and reigning in your heart, your light will shine so brightly where you work and where you go to school and where you live that people will rise up and take notice and say, there's something different about that family. There's something different about that man. There's something different about that lady. In times of moral and spiritual darkness, believing in God, trusting in Christ for salvation, living a pure life is so revolutionary that people can scarcely comprehend it. They don't get it, but they know you're different. They see it in your life. There's a lot of sin and depraved thinking around us today, but we have good reason to believe that revival is coming. Revival is coming. Because our only hope is, is God. And even as things may get worse for a time, I want to tell you, hang in there. The devil always overplays his hand. And in the end, he will be sorely defeated. It says in John chapter 1 and verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. My friends, that's good news for us today. It's good news for this world in which we live today. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. There has always been a battle. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. I will tell you, even before that, in the heavenly realm somewhere. Between God and Satan. There's always been a battle between light and darkness. The two are mutually exclusive. 
There's always been a battle between good and evil. There's always been a battle between God and Satan. It's been going on. But the first place that battle rages is inside of your own heart. And that battle, there's a warfare going on for your soul. And the thief's out there. Bible's very clear. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's fighting for your souls today. And he wants to keep you in chains. He wants to keep you in darkness. He wants to keep you in his own prison. But this morning, even as I preach the word of God, there's a little light beginning to flicker in your heart. There's hope for your marriage. There's hope for your depression. There's hope for your fears. There's hope for your sinfulness and wickedness. There's hope today. You don't have to live and go on like you're living now. The lights come. The lights come. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Maybe you've heard it before and said, you know what, I don't want that. I want to make my own laws. I want to be my own God. I want to be my own Lord. I don't want to submit to anybody else. And you've rejected them. But I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit's pulling you and drawing you this morning. It's decision time today. What am I going to do with Jesus? You have a chance this morning to ask him to come into your heart and life. I'm going to pray for you. You examine your own heart right now, and then I'm going to give you a chance to receive him as your Lord and Savior. Father, right now, into this house you come. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.